the topic I'd like to discuss this evening is something that we rarely discuss, but it's imperative and vital to everything we do. Let me begin, let me begin with the Gemara. The Gemara tells us, Rebbechinina Mendoza. Rebbechinina Mendoza, Chad Be Shabbosay, one Erev Shabbos, he saw his daughter. He saw his daughter was very sad, and he says to his daughter, why are you so sad? And she said, because I just lit the candles, I just lit the lights for Shabbos, and I realized I made a mistake. In those days, there were oil lamps. And she said, instead of pouring oil into the lamps, I poured in chomets, I poured in vinegar. I lit the candles, I was Mechabal Shabbos, and now it's going to very shortly go out, and it's going to be dark for us, the Shabbos. Mechanina Mendoza looks at his daughter and says, Biti ma Why do you care? The one who said that Shemin should light, he'll say that Chomets, that vinegar should light. As a matter of fact, the Mishnah tells us that's in fact what happened. The light that she lit, Erev Shabbos, not only did it light during Shabbos, it remained the entire 24 hours until right after Shabbos, they took a light from it for Havdalah. It lasted miraculously throughout the entire Shabbos. And this is the Gemara, an event in the life of Rabbi Hanina Mendoza. And I'd like to ask two questions on this Gemara because I think we're going to see something very pro- profound from it. And number one, what Rabbi Hanina Mendoza did was incorrect. He asked for a miracle, and we know the rule is, ain't You're not allowed to rely on miracles. Number one, Hashem may not do it. And number two, even if a miracle is brought, counts against you in the world to come. They take away from Yitzchusim. So number one, what he did doesn't sound appropriate. But far worse than that, what Rebbechanina Mendoza said seems incorrect. He said to his daughter, the one who said that oil should light will say that vinegar will light. That's not correct. Hashem created the world with very clear, direct laws of nature immutable laws of nature. Heavy objects tend to fall. Gases tend to expand. Heat tends to rise. It happens throughout the cosmos, in every environment, in every situation. Those are inviolable laws that Hashem created, and He runs the world according to those laws. So what does He mean by saying, the one who said that Shemin should light will now say that vinegar should light, it's not true. Hashem created the world in the way that certain properties, certain components are combustible, certain ones aren't. And certain mediums conduct heat, certain ones don't. And the way Hashem created the world, oil lights, vinegar doesn't. What is Rabbi Hanina Medosa saying? And to understand what I believe is the answer to this, let me share with you a perspective that I think is very important. If you look about the wild kingdom you'll see tremendous diversity. You'll see a giraffe that's 18 feet tall and a rabbit that's 10 inches tall, a kangaroo that hops to get around and a snake that slithers on the ground, a bull that weighs 2,000 pounds and a hummingbird that weighs two-tenths of one ounce. You'll see lions, tigers, bears, tremendous diversity in the wild kingdom. Now here's the question. What do we need so many different species of living animals. Scientists now count 1.5 million types of animals in the world, and they're still counting, and they haven't even begun to explore many, many areas. What in the world do you need so many types of animals? You need a horse? I get it. You need a cow? Maybe. But why do you need such diversity, so many different ways? There are 5,000 species of beetles. If you study the ant, there are over 800 types of ants. Who needs it? Why do you need so many diverse, different manners? And the Chobos of Ovos explains to us that it could well be that the reason why Hashem made so many types of living creatures is so that we should have an eye glimpse into the majesty, the brilliance, the capacity of our Creator. When you see a world that's so diverse, that's so distinct, that's so separate, with each one functioning in its manner, you see the brilliance of our Creator. But I'd like to share with you just some of the 
amazing parts of this. When my kids were little, we lived in Rochester, and we often would go to Niagara Falls, and we'd often go to the other side, onto the Toronto, onto the Canadian side, and along the way there was the Butterfly Conservatory. Now this had been newly built, and when I first took my kids, I was amazed. It was a 14,000 square foot enclosure. They had just built it. They spent over $10 million to, to create the structure, and everything was controlled. The temperature the humidity, and when you walked in, you walked into a very different world. The butterflies were flying all over, they would land on you, they had over 2,000 types of butterflies there, and it was an amazing exhibit, and I really enjoyed it, the children enjoyed it, it was really wonderful. At a certain point, I noticed something very curious. I saw many, many butterflies, I saw many, many of the cocoons, the crystallises, the, what the butterflies grow from, but the life cycle of the butterfly starts from an egg, then the egg hatches to a caterpillar, and the pa- caterpillar spins that cocoon-type lacing around itself, and then emerges the butterfly. In the exhibit, I saw many of the cocoons, and many butterflies, but there were no caterpillars. So I asked one of the curators, why is it that there are no uh, caterpillars here? He said, what, caterpillars? They would eat us out of house and home. There wouldn't be a single stitch of vegetation left. We have to bring them in in the <clears throat> cocoon state and only allow them to hatch because we couldn't possibly have enough vegetation for the caterpillars to eat. And I said to myself, isn't that interesting? 14,000 square feet with multiple dozens of people who are on charge. Everything controlled. The <clears throat> humidity, exact. Temperature, exact. And they can't even keep one species in its full life cycle. In the Amazon jungle, there are approximately 2.3 million square miles of land, consisting of literally over a million species of animals and untold numbers of insects. They'll find one tree, and when they spray this one tree with a blanket under it, you'll find 400 species of insects that fall from it, an upper canopy, a lower canopy, the forest floor, you're dealing with over 10 million species of living things, and who is controlling the ecosystem? Who's making sure that there's enough humidity? Who's making sure that there's not too much acidity? Who's making sure that the temperature is just right? An incredibly complex ecosystem just running. Now, the interesting thing to note is that when man tries one of his biospheres, they always fail. Scientists try this to create a biosphere that's going to run on its own, and invariably it fails. It just decays, and its life ceases to exist there. And you know why? The why is really quite simple. If you own a business, I want to give you a little challenge. I want you to train your employees well, have a well-organized business, and go on a two-week vacation. Now, if you've done a good job, and there are systems in place, you have a good, you have good employees, I believe you can go on a two-week vacation, and you come back, and the business will be fine. What if you left the business for, say, two months? Or better yet, how about two years? If the CEO leaves a small business for two years, he does not expect to come back and see a running business. Because someone has to make sure that all the parts are moving. Someone has to make sure that everything gels. And if you think that this world, with its astonishing complexity, can just run on its own, it's awfully silly. And the reason why that's relevant is because the Rambam tells us that the single most effective way to come to love Hashem, to come to a sense of awe of Hashem, is to look at the world about us. And he says immediately, when a person is misboning, when a person contemplates the complexity, the vastness, the harmonious systems, when a person looks at the Nefloim Gedolim, the wondrous acts in this world, immediately they feel a sense of awe. Oh my goodness, if this is the creation, what does it tell me about my Creator? And says the Rambam, that is the fastest way to come to love Hashem, the fastest way to come to an appreciation of the majesty of the greatness of Hashem. And if you focus on the world we live in, you'll see a world that's astonishingly complex and yet 
consistent. The sun always seems to rise. The oceans never seem to overrun the shores. Winter, spring, summer and fall, and it's always there, always working. And if I were to take you to an orchestra, imagine we went to a symphony orchestra, 81 pieces, and imagine we were sitting right in the front, and you'd see this beautiful, beautiful ensemble, and you begin playing the harmonies in different parts, and it's so beautifully arranged. And imagine I would say to you, isn't it astonishing? <laughs> they, they don't even have a conductor. They just showed up on the stage, and they just, uh, you know, kind of like uh, started playing, and, it, and it's amazing how the music came out so... Con- You'd say to me, fool, how could that be a conductor? Who wrote the music? Who arranged it? Who arranged the practicing? You may not see the conductor because you're sitting way in the front and the conductor's off to the side, but there has to be a conductor. The harmonies, the consistency, the fact that it's all integrated screams out the fact that someone is the conductor. And in the same manner, the world that we live in screams out to its creator. And here's the question. Why don't we feel it? Why don't we sense it? And why don't we go to an ocean and say, oh my goodness, this is astonishing. And the vastness, the size, the incredible... Compl- why aren't we moved by it? And the Chovah Zavavah explains to us the reason. We have a problem. That problem is we were born into this. And when you're born into this and you see it from the time you're young, and you, it's nature, just natural, just regular. And it ceases to have that astonishing impact. It ceases to affect you. It becomes just rote. So I'd like to spend a few minutes seeing if we can introduce some of the wow back into nature. <clears throat> wow are, is Rosh Tevas for wonders of the world. And if we focus on just some of the small little details of this world, I think we'll find astonishing chedushim, very powerful moving concepts. Let me share with you an example. Imagine for a minute that I run a not-for-profit organization, and imagine, now this may be hard to imagine, but imagine that I'm short on funds. And I say, I'm sick and tired of this begging for arms and fundraising campaigns. I'm going to solve this problem for real. I'm going to find myself the most famous hidden Kabbalist I can find, and I'm going to ask him for a bracha. Okay, so I search up and down. I finally find him, the most famous hidden Kabbalist in all of Svas, Turns out he's a grand-nephew of the Baba Sali. I make an appointment, I get on a plane, I go there, I walk in, and as I walk in I see him, hood on his face, black candles lit, a very dim room. As I walk in he says, I know why you're here. You're doing good work. I'm going to take care of the problem. I want you to listen very carefully. When you go back to America, you go to Walmart, and you buy 80 matchbox cars. You put them in the parking lot. Put six feet between each one. And then say these words. He writes down some words. And then when you're done, open this envelope. Mazel Abracha. He hands it to me. Sends me on my way. Listen, I don't say the greatest hidden Kabbalist, famous Kabbalist I've ever known. Okay, listen. I get on a plane, land JFK, head right to Walmart, buy the 80 matchbox cars, put them in the parking lot, six feet between them go into the base of light the candles, begin saying the words, and I look out the window, and those two-inch matchbox cars begin growing to become full-size SUVs, <clears throat> full-size cars. I then open the other envelope, and it says, go sell them, mazel obracha. Could you imagine if I witnessed that scene of a two-inch toy car <clears throat> growing into a full-size sedan? I'd fall on my face and say, Hashem Elohim, it's a nace, it's a mofes, it's incredible. Do you understand that we experience that on a daily basis? The food that we eat comes from the ground, not formed by elves, nobody shaping it, nobody molding it, just coming up from the ground fully formed. And if you walk in a cornfield in the end of the summer, and you see corn stalks six feet tall, and you recognize that each one is specially wrapped with the green wrapper to protect it, and you peel back the wrapper, and you see purposely formed kernels, each one formed exactly as it should be, each one with the right texture, the right flavor, the right aroma, and it comes from the ground. Is it any less a mo face 
than if I saw a matchbox car grow into a full-size sedan? And if you think about it, all the food that we eat comes from the ground, ready packaged, ready to eat, just on its own. And if you don't think that's astounding, I'll share with you something that Chassam Sofer says. He says that when Yeshua took the Klaisol into Eretz Yisrael, he said, now I'm going to show you a nace, a miracle you've never seen before. Remember, everyone who was born <coughs> in Mitzrayim basically died in the Midbar. <coughs> the only people who came into Eretz Yisrael <coughs> basically were born in the Midbar. That's the generation, <coughs> the generation that left Mitzrayim had to die out. Only the new generation <coughs> that were born in the Midbar were the ones who were going to go into Eretz Yisrael. But that generation experienced life a little bit differently than you and I did. That generation found their food left at their doorstop. They ate mun. Mun came from the Shemayim. Mun was perfectly assimilated. And that generation grew up eating mun. That's all they ever knew. And when Yeshua took that generation into Israel, He said, now watch. I'm going to show you something you've never seen before. He took seeds. He put in the ground. He poured water on it. He said, come back tomorrow. And came back the next day. He poured more water the next day, the next day. And from the ground began sprouting green leaves and then began sprouting stalks, and it started growing and growing, and he said, now look, you're seeing a miracle you've never seen before. They had never experienced their food growing from the ground. It was a miracle that was astonishing to them. Why? Because to them it was new. And I think what the Chovos of Ovos is sharing with us is, that if we could introduce that newness, if we could close our eyes and pretend that this is the first time that we're seeing this, this is the first time that we're seeing food grow from the ground. Imagine you've never seen this before, and now for the first time you're experiencing it, you'll see the wonders, the neflos, and you'll see astonishing complexity. You'll see the brilliance of Hashem. But you have to do the exercise. If you imagine wheat, potatoes, cucumbers, tomatoes, beets, peppers, each one growing from the ground, each one perfectly formed, each one with its own flavors, textures, and aromas, and no one telling it what to do. If you train your eye to see that, you see the grand miracles of our Creator. And just to bring this home a little bit, I'd like to share with you three questions. These are what I call the three questions that I like to ask my local atheist. And if you have an atheist that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with, I want you to ask him these three questions. And if your local atheist can answer satisfactorily these three questions, I will tip my yarmulke to him. Let me begin. Imagine that we look at a beautiful orchard. Hundreds of trees laden with oranges, beautiful. Now, here it all started with a seed. You take the orange seed, and you put it in the ground, and up comes the tree, and on the tree comes the oranges, very nice. Here is question number one. The seed weighs about a tenth of an ounce. The tree with the oranges weighs thousands of pounds. There's lots of stuff in there. Where did the thousands of pounds of stuff of the tree, of the orange, come from? Now you may be tempted to tell me it came from the ground. I'd like to share with you that that's not correct. If you had a metal vat, in this metal vat was 500 pounds of dirt. If you were to put an orange seed in that dirt and leave it in the sun and the rain for 10 years, you would have a fully formed orange tree and still have 500 pounds of dirt in that vat. If you'd like to know where the stuff of the tree came from, the bark, the cellulose, the orange, well, the answer is quite simple. There's a process called photosynthesis. You see, the leaves absorb the sunlight, the tree mixes the water and the carbon dioxide using the sunlight as energy, and it synthesizes, creates anew, the carbohydrates. Meaning, the tree creates the stuff of the tree. Now, that's a pretty cute trick. If you had a factory that could produce from the air new stuff just on its own, you'd be a very wealthy fellow. So the first question to ask our atheist friend is, where did the stuff of the tree come from? But let's come to our second question. <clears throat> the second question I'd like to ask our atheist is as follows. When you bite into that orange, you get that sort of sweet and tangy, sort of citrusy flavor. 
So here's the question. It all starts with the pit. Now the pit is kind of bitter. Water is rather tasteless. And dirt. Now, I don't know if you've heard the expression, I'm going to make you eat dirt, boy. I've never eaten dirt, but it's my belief that it's bitter. So here's the question. The pit is bitter, the water is tasteless, and the dirt is bitter. Where did the sweetness of the orange come from? And the answer is photosynthesis. You see, the leaves absorb the sunlight, and they use that to power a synthesis, a new combination, and taking the water, taking the carbon dioxide, and they create the complex carbohydrates, and thereby they create the sugars that you're going to taste in the orange. Now, folks, again, there are no elves telling them how much sweetness, how much tang, how much of the citrus flavor. Somehow the tree knows to produce the sweetness exactly in the flavor, not like a lemon, not a mango, please. This is an orange tree, and it produces the flavor. Now, that's a pretty cute trick. For ever you give an IQ test to a, to a tree? Uh, so who's the president of the United States? Uh, where do you live? Uh, <coughs> trees don't have a very high intelligence quotient. Uh, and somehow they're bright enough to do... Th- okay, so let's imagine our atheist got through question one and question two. <coughs> Stuff of the tree, the sweetness of the orange. Here's question number three. <coughs> what color is the orange? Now, that's a, not the real question. The orange is orange, right? Here's the question. The pit is white on the outside, gray on the inside. Water is colorless. The ground is brown. Clear water, gray pit, brown water. Where does the orange color come from? If you were to dig from here down to China, you will not find orange pigment in the ground. The answer is, now don't get all shook up over here, the answer is photosynthesis. The leaves absorb the sunlight, and they mix the water as with the carbon dioxide and create a new product that wasn't there before. They create the orange color. Now, do you know how much red and how much yellow, how much blue you have to mix in to get the right color of the orange? And it's only the outside of the orange that's going to have the color because that's the only part that has to have the eye appeal. <clears throat> Inside appeal is going to be uh, white. And when you peel apart the orange, the juice sacks, so that you bite in for the burst of flavor, who taught the tree to do that. And if you study an orchard, if you study an apple, if you study a pear, if you look at a banana, you should say this is astonishing from the ground, from the earth, and just coming up, forming these beautiful, delicious fruits all in their right season, all in their right time. And if you don't say the words, that is a miracle, then I don't believe you're really thinking. And if you study any part of our food chain, you'll see wonders, niflos that are astonishing and amazing that should make any intelligent, honest atheist give up his track. Because when you look at the wonder, and when you look at the astonishing complexity, and when you see the systems that are clearly designed, carefully calibrated, and working consistently, you see your creator behind the scenes. The conductor is there making sure the orchestra is playing. Everything is coordinated. Everything is synchronized. Everything is working as it should because God is the creator and maintainer of this world. But there's one more step. We human beings make a very major mistake when it comes to creative acts. We think, I'm creative. I banged a couple of pieces of wood together and I created something. So for instance, let's assume I took some wood, I took some nails, and I created a shack. Now, there was no shack there before. Now there's a shack. Look, I've created a building. I made a shack. Now the interesting to note point is, if I were to create a shack, and I were to leave it for 20 years, and I would come back 20 years later, I'd expect it to be pretty much the same. Maybe a little bit weather-beaten, maybe a little bit uh, worn, but I expect the wood to still be there, the nails to still be there, and the shack basically to be there. And the reason for that is, is because I've created nothing. I've taken elements that were in existence already, I reshuffled them a bit, arranged them a little bit, but I created nothing. If you'd like to understand creation, I'd like to share with you a fundamental dilemma. 
I want you to close your eyes and imagine the moment before Hashem said Vayihi. Imagine that it's the moment before Hashem created the world and His absence of anything, complete, utter absence of physicality, no black, no vacuum, zero, Ephes, complete nothing. Here's the problem. If I have sand, I can bake bricks. If I have molecules, I can make sand. If I have atoms, I can make molecules. If I have quarks, I can make atoms. But if there's absence of physicality, I cannot create anything because there's nothing to form, nothing to shape, and nothing to build from. How do you build from absolute absence of anything, something? It's physically impossible. And this is one of the most critical steps a human being has to come to. And that is recognizing that physicality is an impossibility. Creating something from nothing can't be. It just physically can't happen. Because if I have nothing there, I can't make something out of it. And when you dwell on that question long enough, you can begin understanding Hashem's relationship to all of physicality. And if you'd like to understand that, I'll give you a mushal. I think that well defines it. Imagine that it's a cold February night, and I'm waiting at the bus stop, and I'm shivering to the bone. It's so cold that I close my eyes, and I imagine a beautiful beach scene. White sand, ocean blue, cloudless sky, one lone seagull wafting across the sky. Suddenly the bus comes, splash! Gone is the ocean blue, gone is the sand, gone is the seagull. I am the dreamer. As long as I dream about the dream, the seagull remains, the sand remains, and the ocean blue remains. The minute I cease thinking about the dream, it all vanishes, it's all not there. If you'd like to understand Hashem's relationship to physicality, it's much like I to the dream. As I am the dreamer, I keep the dream. Hashem is the creator and mishave of all of creation. When Hashem created the world, it wasn't sufficient to just create the world. Hashem has to constantly keep it in existence. Because a yesh may I in creation, a from nothing, something creation, requires not just creating it, but maintaining it every moment of its existence. And if at any moment in time, Hashem would cease infusing energy into any particle of physicality, it would cease to exist. And if you'd like to understand Hashem's relationship to the physical world, everything that's in existence was created by Hashem and is maintained in existence by Hashem. And what that means in plain, simple language is, if you see a rock, if you see an ocean, if you see a tree, if you see anything in the world, you're seeing Hashem. Because Hashem is the creator and maintainer of all of physicality. Unlike I with the shack. You see, the reason why I can build a shack and leave it for 20 years and expect it to be there is because I created nothing. I took elements that were in existence already, I reshuffled them, I moved them around, but I created nothing. If Hashem were to create the world and leave it, it would cease to exist. And because a yesh I in creation, from nothing, something creation, requires not just creating it, but keeping it, much like I to the dream, I am the dream, I keep it, Hashem keeps every particle of physicality in existence. And I'd like to share with you that that's, I believe, exactly the answer to Rabbi Hanina Bendosa. You see, when Rabbi Hanina Bendosa saw a candle burning, he said, that's astonishing. Why is it that oil burns? And why is it that that molecular structure gives off the energy when it's exposed to heat? Why is it? What Rechanina Mendoza saw was the nace, the miracle of Hashem running the world. The Ramban explains to us, when you're looking at any feature in this world that we call nature, it's just an illusion. Those are just the systems, the mechanics, via which God runs the world. Ancient man saw God. When ancient man put a seed into the ground and up came a wheat stalk, he said, this is astonishing. There's no explanation. It must be the Creator. It must be Hashem. Ancient man saw God. 
modern man figured out the levers, figured out the system. And modern man says, oh, see that? I don't need Hashem anymore. I understand there are cells. I understand there's cellular division. I understand there's DNA, there's RNA. I get it. I don't need God. And the mistake that modern man makes is he now has an inkling, a slight clue to the wisdom of our Creator. He now sees part of the system that our Creator put into place. He has not replaced Hashem. He's merely found some of the systems that Hashem uses when Hashem runs the world. Explains the Ramban any facet of nature that we call nature just running and nature running its course is Hashem guiding it, constantly keeping it. And there's certain laws that Hashem runs the world via. But you're witnessing the Creator having those seeds, having those seeds divide, having those seeds expand, having those cells become what they should become, having this part become the cellulose and this part become the bark. What you're looking at when you're seeing a seed grow is Hashem constantly keeping it and guiding it through the process. All of nature is just Hashem. We're blind. We don't see Hashem anywhere. We don't see Hashem here. We don't see Hashem in the trees. We don't see the Hashem behind the scenes. But Rabbi Hanina Mendoza did not have our blindness. And when he looked at an ocean, he said, that's astonishing. Who created it? Hashem. But who's Misava? Who keeps it there? Hashem. When he saw a mountain, he said, that's an astonishing feature. Who made it and who keeps it? Throughout his day, he saw Hashem. Throughout his life, he saw Hashem. Hashem was with him every day, every moment, because if there's anything that my eyes see, Hashem is keeping in existence. But it wasn't just the external. And Mechanina Bendosa understood the internal as well. He understood that when lightning strikes, Hashem is guiding it every step of the way. When an ocean comes in and comes out, Hashem is there guiding it, keeping it, Every motion, every activity, Hashem is intimately involved in. Hashem is everywhere at all times, keeping everything and moving everything. And any part of nature that you study, that you look at, you're looking at Hashem using a system, using a consistent approach, but that's you what witnessing Hashem. And when his daughter said, Ay Tati, what I did I put I put vinegar in. And Makanina Dosa said, Don't you understand? When oil burns, why does it burn? Because Hashem keeps it. Hashem makes it give off the light. Hashem can equally, just as easily say, Chomets should burn. Why isn't that a miracle? We're not allowed to rely on miracles. He saw behind the mask. It's a miracle if it happened to you and I, because, oh my goodness, it's nature. And it changed. Oh my goodness, it's a moface. But you see, Rebekhanin Mendoza saw all of nature as a miracle. He wasn't blinded. <clears throat> if he saw a matchbox car going from two inches to six feet, that wouldn't have moved him any more than if he saw a corn stalk growing in the summer. Because he recognized the astonishing wonder. All of nature was a glaring proof that Hashem is here. <clears throat> All of nature was Hashem guiding it. To him there was no distinction whether oil lights or vinegar lights. It wasn't to him a miracle. It was just another way that Hashem runs the world, and therefore it didn't come off as, as a miracle to him. It didn't come off his Olam Haba. Quite the opposite. In the same way that Hashem says oil should light, Hashem could just as easily say vinegar should light. To him it wasn't a miracle, and he was zochah to this happening because he saw behind the mask. And I believe that this is a fantastic concept because if you train your eyes to see these things, you have a constant infusion of emuna. See, Rebekhanina Mendoza didn't say, where's Hashem, where's Hashem? If I see anything, I see Hashem. If I see a brick, I see Hashem. If I see a wall, I see Hashem. If I see anything in existence, I see Hashem. If I see myself, I see Hashem. Because Hashem is keeping me in existence every moment of my existence. My fingers, my arms, my legs, my head, my chest... Rebekhanina Mendoza saw Hashem all day, every day, because anything that he experienced, he witnessed Hashem keeping it, guiding it, and he had a constant infusion of Amuna all day. And in that sense, if we could train ourselves to put back some of the wow, some of the wonder back into this thing 
called creation, if we can learn to appreciate some of the astonishing wonders, we too can have such an infusion of constant demuna because it doesn't take that much introspection to see wonders of astonishing proportions. And I'd like to share with you just an interesting little exercise. If you would like to really grow in Amuna, I have a very simple exercise that I believe will help tremendously. I believe this exercise will help you tremendously grow in Amuna, and it's really quite simple. Let me share with you first an observation. If you've ever seen a crow or any large-winged bird fly, you'll notice that before it flaps its wings, it takes a long, tall, vertical jump. I mean, before it flaps its wings, it jumps up, and only once it's jumped off the ground does it begin flapping its wings. Now, why does the crow always jump before it flaps its wings? The answer is quite simple. It is a large-winged bird. And on the ground, if it were to expand its wings and begin slapping its wings, it would slap them against the ground, break its wings. Hence, the crow jumps up, it does its vertical leap, and once it's cleared the ground, then it can begin gently flapping its wings, can take off. Once it's high enough, then it can do the full extensions of the wing. Okay, very nice. Look at a crow and a large-winged bird, you'll see the same. Here's the question. The question is, who taught you to do that? Who taught you to do the vertical leap before you begin flapping your wings? Who taught you that? And don't tell me the mother bird taught you that, and because scientists, and it took German scientists to devise this little experiment, and German scientists took a little experiment to prove that it's not true. They took two broodlings of pigeons. One were just eggs, the other began hatching. Anyway, when both groups hatched, they took one group and put the little fledgling, little chick, into a metal tube so it couldn't flex its wings. And they waited for enough time for the other brood to grow. And after about a month, when the group that was free began flying away, they realized these birds had developed enough. The scientists then took the tube, they put their mouth to one end, blew the bird out into the air, and the bird found itself in midair, and instantly the newborn bird knew how to flap its wings and fly instinctively. And when you see the instincts that are implanted into the animal kingdom, when you see each animal with all the instincts it needs for its survival, it knows what to eat, how to attain it, how to hunt it, and knows how to digest it, it knows how to procreate. When you see all of the instincts imprinted into the animal, at a certain point you say, this is astonishing. And if you need a little chizik in it, just ask the question, who taught you to do that? Watch a spider spin the web. The web looks like a bicycle tire, but not the tire part, it looks like the spokes, and in the center sits the spider waiting. Now here's the problem. Spiders eat insects. Well, spiders should go hungry. Why? Because insects fly and spiders don't. How does the spider eat? Very simple. It spins the web. But you have to appreciate the web alone is not effective. Because what's a web going to do to catch a fly? The answer is, if you look around the web, the orbs webs, there are round parts, go around a bunch of circles, and then there are spindle parts that kind of look like a bicycle, and the kind of spokes that hold the bicycle up. And if you'll note, all of the spindles, the spider is able to walk on, and only on the circles, every couple of little spots, he puts a spot of glue. Spot of glue, spot of glue, spot of glue, spot of glue, spot of glue. And you'll see the entire orb is covered with spots of glue, except where the spider walks. He's able to walk up the spindles up and forth clearly without getting stuck in the glue. But throughout, every other part of the web is filled with spots of glue. Now, you may say to me, okay, glue is cute, but how's it going to catch the spider? How's it going to catch the fly? So what happens is the fly finds itself, it doesn't see the web, and flies into the web because at night it doesn't see the web, and it finds itself, its wings, kind of like stuck on the glue, or its foot stuck on the glue. Now, the web is rather weak, and the glue isn't that strong, so the fly can simply fly away. 
Except here's the problem. <clears throat> the spider web is made out of a material that is the strongest known material to mankind. They say if you were to take a one-inch strand of this material that spider webs are made of, it would stop a fully loaded 747 in mid-flight. It could stop that much power. It's the strongest material known to man, yet it's incredibly flexible. It stretches. So what happens is a spider gets his leg stuck in the glue, and it tries to get out. But the glue is kind of globby, and the string kind of, you know, the, the spider web is kind of flexible. So it tries to stretch, but it, it can't get any any tension. It can't get any any leverage. So it tries with its leg, it puts its other leg down to get some leverage, and that leg's stuck. And then it tries again, and it gets itself stuck because it's such a flexible and yet sticky, gluey thing. Who taught the spider to do that? Who taught it the perfect form that's going to be geometrically as strong as possible, yet let as much air in as possible, and yet be close enough to catch the flies? Who taught it to spin it? Who taught it to lay down the glue? And by the way, if you're not impressed yet, you'll find that most of the large orb-spinning spiders leave white spots in the center of their web. You see, spiders spin their webs at night, and usually towards dusk they begin, and by nightfall the, the web is fully formed. Now here's the problem. Birds would tend to fly through it and destroy the web. The spiders put white spots on it so that the birds see that, oh, no, there's a spider web. Last time I got that stuck in my feathers. So the birds avoid it. The, the insects don't see that color. They're not able to see it. They fly right into it. Who taught you to do that? Who taught the crow to fly? Who taught pigeons to fly? Who taught wildebeest to run? By the way, you ever watch a wildebeest? Watch a baby. This is a fun... I love watching this one. Watch a baby toddler at eight months of age. And the baby takes a step, and a second step, and a third. Oh, wonderful, Mike, you took four steps. Wonderful, wonderful, one, an advanced child at eight months of age. The wildebeest is running at five minutes after birth. The wildebeest, which is like the cow of the African Serengeti, the wildebeest mother gives birth, and if in five minutes that baby is not able to run, it will be eaten by the jackals, by the various predators around. Within five minutes of birth, the wildebeest is running at full speed with the rest of the pack. But here's the interesting part. Different animals have different gaits. A horse, many, let's say many dogs, typically will run front two paws, back two paws, front two paws, back two paws. Certain horses run differently. They'll run front left, back right, right left, meaning alternating. They don't run just back and forth, back and forth. The wildebeest has one of the most sophisticated gaits in existence. And scientists have filmed it. The timing, the precision in its running has to be down to the milli, mil, one thousandth of a second because if it's slightly off, it's going to trip. And then in five minutes of birth, it's running at full speed. Who taught you to do that? And when you study a complex world, 1.5 million species of living things, and each of them with their way of keeping an existence, each of them keeping themselves alive, each of them knowing exactly which food to eat. The robin hungers for the worm. <clears throat> the cat hungers for the mouse. Intuitively, instinctively, they know what the food source should be. Who taught you that? And by the way, folks, if you're not yet convinced, and you're not yet astonished, let me share with you one more. This is one of my favorites. And do not try this at home. But if you were to take a duck, and put it into your sink filled with dishwater, you'd find an interesting thing. The duck would sink like a stone to the bottom of your sink. Right? Take your sink and fill it up with warm water with dish detergent in it, and put a duck in it, and the duck will drown almost immediately. Why? And Because dish detergent cuts through the grease, cuts through the oil on the duck's feathers, and the duck feathers become absorbent of water, and the duck clunks to the bottom of your sink. Every duck you see on a lake floating floats for only one reason. Its feathers are covered with a sheen of oil. The oil keeps the water out. Therefore, the feathers displace more water than their weight. Hence, the duck floats. Now, I want you to understand something. A swan has approximately 25,000 feathers. 
and almost all day long it's going to preen. You know what preen means? Preen means it takes its beak, puts it under its armpit to the gland that produces the oil, and it smears oil on its feathers all day long. All day long covering the feathers, making sure that they're straight, and making sure that they're all covered in oil. Who taught you to do that? Who taught you that chachmah? And when you study a world that's so complex, that's so vast, that's so intricate, at a certain point you have to say, this is astonishing, and this is beyond belief. And if you're still not there, here's my final one. This is it. If this one doesn't get you, then I don't know. I don't know. Okay, when I was a kid growing up, and Rabbi Glazer can vouch for me as well, we used to buy lettuce in any store, and it was never a problem of bugs. You bought lettuce, you didn't check, you didn't, there was no infestation. And why is it? Because in the day, 60s and 70s, they had a they had a product called DDT. And DDT is an insect repellent. It's a highly toxic poison, and it killed all infestation. DDT was so effective that when a housewife went to the store to buy a head of lettuce, there was no such things as bugs. It just didn't exist. Now, what happened was environmentalists began discovering a major, major problem. And for decades, no one put it together. But one of the problems was that the bald eagle population began declining dramatically. The bald eagle, the symbol of America, their population began declining, and no one could figure it out, but they became near extinct. And scientists were trying to discover the reason, they were trying to uncover it, they couldn't discover it until someone uncovered the reason. You see, the farmers would spray DDT, the insecticide, on their crops. The rains would take the DDT and bring it into the streams. The salmon typically would drink trace elements, tiny, tiny little amounts of the DDT in the water. Eagles are famous fishermen, they love fish. The eagles would eat the fish containing these trace elements of DDT. And then when the eagle would lay its egg, the eggshell came out too thin. And when the eggshell came out too thin, the mother eagle would sit on the eggshell and would crack the eggshell. Hence, there was no population growth. There were no young being born. All the eggs were cracking. And they stopped the use of DDT, and suddenly the fish no longer drank that water. The DDT trace elements weren't in the fish the eagles no longer had in their body. And again, then the eagles laid the egg with the proper thickness of the shell, and the population rebounded. And now, in fact, the eagle is no longer an extinct species. In fact, it's quite safe now in, in the world population. Now, here's the point. Do you know the proper thickness of an eggshell so that the mother should be able to sit on it, can hold its weight, and yet allow the baby to crack through it when it's time? Do you know the exact, well, if you have a micrometer, which measures microns, you can know that the difference between the proper thickness and improper is almost, it's not a hair, it's a fraction. It's something that you and I couldn't measure. Who taught the eagle to give birth to the right thickness of eggshell, not the wrong one until the... When you see this world, when you see the astonishing complexity, you fall on your face, you say this is beyond description, beyond belief, you say Hashem Elohim, and I believe that's exactly what Rebbechanina Mendoza did. Rebbechanina Mendoza saw Hashem all day, every day. And his daughter lit that vinegar and said, Oy vey, it's, gonna, it's not going to burn. Rebbechanina Mendoza said, what's the difference to Hashem? The same miracle that Hashem makes oil burn, Hashem is going to make vinegar burn. It's no, no different. He saw oil burning as an incredible miracle. He cut through the mask. He wasn't fooled by nature. He understood that nature is Hashem guiding the world all day, every day. The mistake that we make is because we're born into this world, we assume it's nature, it no longer moves us. Corn, wheat, apples, nothing. It doesn't mean anything to us. If we were to witness a matchbox car growing into a full-size SUV, we'd be astonished, we'd be amazed. That's what Yeshua showed the cholesterol. Look, I'm going to put seeds in the ground, and from the ground are going to come fruit. From the ground are going to come wheat. From the ground are going to come food that will be ready for you to eat. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Ask your local atheist. Ask him the questions. Where did the stuff of the tree come from? Photosynthesis. 
The tree made the stuff. <clears throat> where did the where did the sweetness come from? The tree made the stuff. And by the way, the green color is just the right shade and that it absorbs the maximum amount of usable sunlight. And where did the color of the orange come? Again, the tree. The tree has no IQ. The tree has no intelligence. When you see an apple forming, when you see a banana, when you see a mango, you're seeing astonishing wisdom. There are no Keebler elves baking those little things inside the tree. You're seeing Hashem putting such care, such forethought, such wisdom forth into the world, you should fall on your face and say, Hashem Lukim, it's astonishing. Because we're used to it, we, we've lost the wow. Rabbi Hanina Mendoza never lost the wow. And one of the things that a Jew wants to grow is to put the wow back into nature. How do you put the wow, the wonders of the world, back into nature? You ask questions. Why does the tree grow acorns? And why does the acorn grow a new oak tree? And why does the crow jump? Why does the robin build its nest all the way on the edge of the tree, on the very weakest branch? Why not does the robin build its nest right in the center where it should? By the way, if you don't think I'm right, in the fall, now, go into the woods and you'll find nests. Many birds build their nests right center, right in the center of the tree. It's strong. The robin, for some strange reason, builds its nest all the way on the edge of a weak branch. Why does it do that? And the answer is quite simple. Because there are many animals that just love to eat robin's eggs. And one of them is the chipmunk and the squirrel. And the squirrel is a great climber. And the robin puts its nest on the edge of a long branch on the very edge. And the squirrel sees the robin's nest, the robin's away gathering worms or whatever, and the chipmunk or the squirrel says, yummy, dinner, robin eggs, just what I love to eat. And he begins climbing out on that branch. But as it gets further out and further out and further out, it realizes, oh my goodness, this branch is very wobbly. That nest is all the way on the edge. If I go all the way out to the edge, I'm going to fall down. It traces its steps back and leaves the robin's nest untouched. Who taught the robin that wisdom? Who taught you that? When you begin asking those questions, who taught the falcon to jump? Who taught the lion that that's the right food to eat? When you begin studying the world and you begin asking those questions, you have a constant infusion of Amuna, a constant proof to Hashem, a constant seeing Hashem. And I want to close with one last thought. If you want to put some newness, really put some freshness into this thing called creation and really see Hashem in a clear way, I have a very simple Musr exercise. I want you to close your eyes and imagine what it was like to be Adam Harishon, the first man, when he was born. Imagine you open your eyes and this is the moment of your birth, but you're Adam, a fully formed man, brilliant, with a fully loaded Wikipedia, all the knowledge of creation. He understood the tides, he understood the water, he understood rain, he understood everything in creation. A brilliant man opens his eyes and says, Wow! Look at this world, colors, textures, aromas, and sights. This is astonishing. And look at this. Wow. What's, the, what's this? I, I feel, I, 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 things on my uh, finger, fingers. Oh, they move. Oh, my goodness. They move. Oh, wow. And, and wait, I can feel hot and cold, smooth and rough, wet, wet and dry. Oh, my, this is astonishing. I could tell just by touching something, whether it's cold or hot, hard or soft. That's amazing. And, and but wait, there, there's a, something over there. I, I want to get. Oh, what's? Hey, how do I get? Oh my goodness, I I got these two things. Oh my god, they they move legs, and they're kind of like they're thick on the top and they get thinner and they move. I have mobility. I have joints. I have. Could you imagine the neflos bore that Adam Arishan experienced at that moment? Everything in the world was new. Everything was novel. Everything was astonishing to him because he wasn't handicapped by having seen it before. He was born a fully mature adult and got to see the wonders of Hashem in a world that was so vast, so complete, and he was astonished and amazed. If you could recap that moment, 
if you could touch it by closing your eyes and imagining you are that man, and you could see the wonders of creation, an unending stream of the wonders of creation, you see your Creator, you grow, and you finally get to see some of, an eye glimpse of the majesty of our Creator, you come to love Him, you come to understand His presence, you come to real Yiras Shemayim. And now, Hermit Glazer, if you're still there, I would like, um, if we could open a floor to questions, I don't know if it'll work, but um, if it'll work, um, if you can hear me still. Okay, that's good. Okay, and tell me what the question, yeah. Why don't you repeat the question? Or, or, I think that'll work. Yeah, hi. Uh, not really a question, it's more of an improvement on, on the story about the three questions. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions was about the uh, the tree being able to grow out of nothing, basically, out of, out of, out of um, photosynthesis. Yeah. So I was just improving on that also. It's not only that it grows out of photosynthesis, it grows out of thin air, because technically the carbon dioxide is two carbon, no, one carbon and two oxygens, right? Uh-huh. So, so where does the carbon go? The carbon goes to the tree. It releases the oxygen to the human, and the, the tree keeps the carbon and creates the, the, the bark and all the tree's material looking out of carbon through photosynthesis. Right. So how, it, how it makes the carbon from, from, from uh, a gas to a solid, I have no idea, but <laughs> not only is it from the, from the, from the, from the, um, the nutrients and from the, uh, the sugars and everything, it's also just coming out of nowhere. I hear, so I hear. I hear you. I, right, right, right. It's taking the carbon dioxide, which is a gas, <clears throat> releasing the oxygen, which is why it oxygenates air, and just absorbing the carbon and transferring and transmuting, really synthesizing the carbon together with the water into a new carbohydrate. Right. It's it's pretty uh, uh, pretty smart tree, no? That tree must have gone to Harvard, no? Or uh, or at least uh, I don't know. The tree probably went to sure to Yale, no? Yeah. Okay, again, I apologize for not being there in person. I tried my darndest. I really did. I. Yeah, go Can I speak about evolution? So, let me mention this. Number one, there's a wonderful schmooze on the schmooze. If you go to the schmooze.com, there's a schmooze, I think it's number 22, called. Wait, can you hear me? Yeah. It's the schmooze called schmooze number twenty-two. Evolution doesn't make sense. Um, I highly recommend you listen to that schmooze. I went through that exact topic. Evolution doesn't make any sense. If you go to the schmooze.com or the schmooze app or the schmooze podcast, look for schmooze number twenty-two. Evolution doesn't make sense. I just posited that question and dealt with sort of like stepping back and asking ourselves, "What do you think?" In other words, let's look at evolution. Let's look at creation. Which one do you think? is more likely which one makes sense. And I highly recommend that schmooze. By the way, I also recommend there are quite a number of schmooze on the schmooze site. Also, if you're interested, we have a WhatsApp chizik group three, four times a week. We send out uh, it's very inspirational, motivational videos. If you'd like to become a member, just send a... You can go to the schmooze.com. If you go to T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, you'll see on top, and just click the button and it'll, you'll become a member. Again, to the schmooze.com, T-H-E... SHMUZ.com, and you could join the Shmooz WhatsApp group. And again, to your phone, you'll get three, four times a week these short inspirational videos. Um, also, I want to mention, in case you weren't there last week, the 10 really dumb mistakes is coming out. The 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. That book is coming out. I highly recommend look for it, Hanukkah time. If you got the pre publication, Ashrach Tolach. If not, you look for the 10 really dumb mistakes. They're very smart couples make it's a it's been very well received by many people, many marriage therapists, class and college teachers. I've had many people tell me it's very, very helpful. So I um please please make yourself uh please join. And one last thing. There's a schmooze live every Thursday night. Um as well as very exciting, at least to me it is, every Wednesday night now I'm I started Derek Hashem. 
I saw the Derech Hashem Shir Wednesday night. It's on Zoom. You can catch it on Torah anytime, or if you go to theshmuz.com, you can get a link to it. So Wednesday night is Derech Hashem. Thursday night is the Shmuz Live. And again, if you'd like to become a member to get the Shmuz WhatsApp Chizik group, to get the inspirational videos, just please go to theshmuz.com. That's T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. Rabbi Glazer, I thank you very much. I want to thank the uh, the Jewish Center, the, and uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity. May you have much chizik, much, much continued atzlacha, and thank you.